I'm unstuck like the ever given free to the sea, living large like a barge, trying to stay in charge, watching stocks hitting highs while interest rates rise. Wondering how this keeps going, how investors keep throwing money at the markets. When are they going to call it quits? Should I keep investing? I'm starting to stress. Maybe I should just fire up another episode of the Investopedia Express. Well, hello and happy holly and happy holidays to those of you celebrating the various special days that come around this season. U.S. stock markets are starting the week at record highs as investors stick to the recipe. Lowish interest rates, mildish inflation, lots of government spending, and some investors with a little more money in their pockets thanks to those stimulus checks. Still, the wall of worry keeps getting higher. The Ever Given, that 1,300-foot cargo ship operated by Taiwan-based Evergreen Group, was partially freed by a fleet of tugboats late Sunday night. Over 400 vessels have been waiting to pass through the Suez Canal since the Ever Given veered into its east side during stormy weather on March 23rd. It's taken a lot of dredging and a lot of tugging, but the real hero here might just be the moon, which lifted the tide and everything on it to help loosen the vessel. While the blockage in the already constipated global supply chain may be clearing, the vulnerability of how we move products around the world has never been more evident. The Ever Given was blocking $9.4 billion a day in cargo transports, and if you don't think those extra expenses are going to be passed along to consumers, well, I have a cargo ship to sell you. It looks like someone turned the channel on shares of Viacom and Discovery Communications, two of the hottest stocks of the past year. In fact, Viacom was the best-performing U.S. stock since the market hit its lows last March 23, 2020. But a big investor has reportedly been unloading those shares by the truckload, prompting massive losses in global investment banks, including Credit Suisse and Nomura Holdings. The Wall Street Journal reports that Archegos Capital Management sold $30 billion in holdings, and on Monday morning, Credit Suisse warned it could incur substantial losses from the unwinding of those positions. Other bank stocks are selling off in unison to start the week, and investors are starting to worry that there may have been way too much margin lending in recent months. With cheap money everywhere, investors have been borrowing barge loads of cash to sink into stocks, betting they'll keep rising. When they don't, or an investor needs to unwind their position, they may be getting that dreaded margin call from the bank. That's the call you don't want to get. In a margin call, a bank asks a client to put up more collateral if a position partially funded with borrowed money has fallen sharply in value. If the client can't afford to do that, the lender will sell the securities to try to recoup what is owed. We've got a busy but short week ahead as the first quarter comes to a close. U.S. markets are closed for Good Friday, although the U.S. Labor Department will release the March jobs report on Friday morning. Economists are expecting around 600,000 jobs to be added as employers keep adding workers back to their payrolls. President Biden is expected to add more details to his 3 to $4 trillion infrastructure plan at an event on Wednesday. Where that money is going and how we pay for it are the multi-trillion dollar questions on investors' minds. U.S. auto sales for March will be reported this week. TrueCar forecasts total new vehicle sales will soar 42% on an adjusted basis in March to 1.46 million units. That brings the seasonally adjusted annualized rate for total light vehicle sales to an estimated 16.4 million units. U.S. retail deliveries of new cars and light trucks are expected to come in at 1.26 million, an increase of 53% from a year ago when nobody was buying a new car. Consumption Junction? What's your function? As the first quarter of 2021 draws to a close this week, here's a little number soup to clear the palate. 
143 million. That's the number of COVID vaccine doses administered in the U.S. so far, and the White House says that number will reach 200 million by April 25th. 6.2%. That's the national unemployment rate in February, down from nearly 15% in April of 2020, but almost double pre-pandemic levels. 162 billion. That's the record amount raised by companies that have gone public in 2021. Only $37 billion was raised in the first three months of 2020. 225. That's the number of SPACs, those special purpose acquisition companies that have gone public this year. That's nearly four every single weekday. They've already raised more than they did in all of 2020. 1.685%. That's the yield on the 10-year Treasury, the interest rate the U.S. government pays to borrow money, and that has nearly tripled in a year. Here are the returns for major asset classes and Bitcoin so far in 2021. Bitcoin is up 78.5%. Oil up 26%. Global equities around 3%. The U.S. dollar up around 3% as well. How about bonds? U.S. high-yield corporate bonds, basically flat. U.S. investment-grade corporate bonds, down 4%. U.S. treasuries, down 4.8%. And gold, down 8.5%. More than a year into the pandemic, and the global economic recovery is happening in various stages across major developed economies. It's uneven at best, and a resurgence in the virus in Europe and parts of the U.S. are threatening its progress. Still, capital markets have been way out in front of the recovery for months and seem vulnerable to any hiccups in regaining our economic footing. Jeff Kleintop, the chief global investment strategist at Charles Schwab, and his team have been tracking this rebuild since last spring, and he joins us now on The Express. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. What's the biggest area of concern for global investors? And you're always telling folks in your notes and in your articles to look globally because that's the way the market is these days. Is it the resurgence of the new variants of the virus? Is it the supply chain pressure as demand surges? Is it geopolitical attention? What worries you the most? All of the above are certainly concerns. I think in the near term, it's this reflation risk. It's the idea that we've got pretty good amount of demand around the world. Consumers, in many cases, being supported by stimulus are really demanding a lot of the goods that are being produced. Yet we're seeing a lot of bottlenecks, a lot of chain uh, disruptions in the global supply chain. That's led to really lengthening supply chain issues and of course, rising prices. Whenever you've got demand and and constraints on supply, we're seeing that pressure. And we've just got the uh, preliminary purchasing managers reports here for March Pretty incredible surge in pricing pressure. And I think most central banks are looking through this as a transitory factor, but there's some risk that they may not, or that these transitory factors could linger. And that might mean a turnaround in the stimulus picture, maybe before the uh, recovery really takes solid root in the second half of this year. So there are some concerns there about the reflation risk. It's remarkable that we're a year or so into the pandemic. We have equity markets around the world near or at record highs. And some of the emerging markets, even China, though, they've shown some signs of rolling over. The start of the year and the end of 20 was money flowing into emerging markets, which is what happens when you have that recovery. A little bit of a rollover now. What's happening big picture that investors should be paying attention to? Well, I think that when you take a look at the big picture, a few risks, I think, come into play. One is that the Biden administration in China 
have not immediately eased tensions, right? Those tariffs haven't been rolled back. If anything, maybe they've been escalated a little bit by the recent meeting in Alaska. So some of the market's sense of relief that that was going to be uh, something in the background is, is gone away. So that's, that's a tension that's, that's reemerged. We've also got concerns about different variants and the pace of the rollout in different places. Now, it's interesting because China's stock market has actually done reasonably well this year. Europe has done pretty well this year. In fact, outpacing the U.S. and the U.K., yet lagging in terms of the vaccine rollout. But I think it's very important that we get these nations around the world on a path towards mass immunizations to at least 50% of their populations towards the end of this year. China is nowhere near that path. Neither is Europe at the moment. So we really need to see a major acceleration in Q2. And of course, there are plenty of risks to that. You and your team create these terrific economic recovery trackers for global economies around the world. You're looking at mobility, electricity use, restaurant reservations, other metrics. We adopted some of those for our New York City Recovery Index to look at the real field growth, not to what the, the government reports are telling, which is important too, but on the ground, what we use, how we spend, how we're moving around. Tell us what you're seeing through those numbers, especially some of the ones that are not what you're going to get in a monthly government report. They're surprisingly good. And you know, what we're seeing is that the second round of lockdowns was nothing like the first ones when you look at what was happening on Main Street, when you look at what was happening in, in stores and even in restaurants, and especially movie theaters. This is one I really like to track pretty closely. You know, in February, China had the biggest box office we've ever seen for that country. People felt comfortable gathering together for entertainment in large groups, even without mass immunization from the vaccine. So that really says something about progress in terms of containing the outbreaks or just people feeling confident or or just pent up demand in getting out again. I think that says a lot about the service sector demand recovery we could see in the second half of this year. Uh, as already travel bookings are are starting to pick up for airlines. Do you expect that to happen in the U.S.? We know folks are pent up. We know they want to get out. We know they're sitting on a lot of money through this recent stimulus package. The personal savings rate hit a record high in 2020. A lot of money is in the economy. A lot of money is in the hands of consumers. Those that have done well, have credit, have held on to their jobs, own equity, have equity in their homes, they're ready to spend. Do you think they're going to put it back into the economy? Or do you think people are going to tiptoe their way back in, given the trepidation around new variants, or just the fact that we've had a year of not doing that, and it's going to take a minute to break the ice? It's interesting to look at investor sentiment and business sentiment. So investor sentiment has increasingly been, well, it's been pretty positive, and we're actually seeing the flows to follow that up. You know, Looking back, it seems like every presidential election in the U.S. has marked a turning point for investors. After a year or so of outflows from the market, it's like flipping a switch. Money comes back in. It doesn't seem to matter who wins. Money seems to flow in, and we are seeing that again. And it doesn't last a, a few weeks or a few months. It lasts a year or more and tends to broaden the move in the market. So last year, stocks went up. But when I say stocks, I literally mean stocks, like a handful of them. This year, the advance has been much more broad, I think in part supported by this money coming back into the market, supporting the broad indexes and lifting a larger number of stocks. We're seeing the same thing with business leaders. Despite the the rise in financing costs, we're actually seeing capital spending really pick up in an interesting way, even in Japan and and other parts of the world that we haven't seen a lot of CapEx in a while. And M&A, gosh, merger and acquisition activity has been booming this year as business leaders look to invest in many different ways. So yeah, I, I think we are seeing that money being put to work in the economy, into the markets. And that's encouraging as we look to the second half recovery. Your colleague, Lizanne Saunders, does a great job of tracking those flows too. And the money going into equity markets is is at record highs. 
yet you still feel it doesn't feel like there's a lot of enthusiasm behind it. It may be a rally people love to hate, but I get this question all the time and I'm sure you get it too. Who's going to pay for all this spending? Let's just deal with the US for a second where we've thrown a few trillion dollars into the recovery. It was triage money. It's money to help bridge us to the recovery. Now we've got more infrastructure bills coming. Who's going to pay for this? My kids, your kids, or is this a problem that's going to boomerang more quickly and affect investors in the next couple of years? This all comes down to interest rates because you can have a lot of debt, but if you have very, very low interest rates, it's not a problem. So it all gets down to this reflation risk. And if we do see some of these, what we currently consider to be transitory problems become longer term issues and, and we see prices begin to rise because normally four, five, 6% interest rates, we think that's not a problem for the stock market looking back over the last 20 or 30 years, but it could be now because we have so much more debt. So that's the real risk. And I think this is the first economic cycle in, well, in modern times that we're going into where the world's labor supply is shrinking. Usually it's been growing either because of China or India or or wherever. It's now falling. And and that has an interesting impact in terms of wages and wage growth and and what that means for inflation. So that's the real key issue. I think if there's a country that's going to hit that wall first, well, it would probably be Japan. Japan has much more debt relative to the size of its economy and how it's managing that. Well, it went to zero interest rates in 1999. The rest of the world followed 10 years later. QE, the rest of the world followed. Maybe they'll come up with another plan to kick the can down the road on this debt burden. But if they don't, well, maybe the rest of the world will learn from that. In the meantime, I'd expect a depreciating dollar as real interest rates fall in the U.S. and our greater and greater financing needs uh, push down on that. So that's the pressure release valve in the near term. Longer term, all depends on interest rates. What's your hot take for what could go really well in 2021 that could exceed our expectations in terms of economic growth, which seems crazy because everyone keeps raising their GDP forecasts, lowering their unemployment forecasts. We see you know, strategists around the world kind of raising their S&P forecasts to some degree. What's your hot take on what may surprise us? The return of earnings for the economically sensitive parts of the market. It's been so long since we've seen economically sensitive companies really drive earnings growth. We were in a decade where it was all about the secular growth stories really driving things, you know, tech and healthcare. And now I think we've seen a shift, energy, materials, financials, sectors that have been left for dead coming back and really helping to drive earnings growth and and performance. And I think many investors might still be hanging on to the old winners. You know, whenever you go through some turbulence in the market, investors kind of hang on to those old winners thinking they'll be the first ones to come back and lead the way. But often when we enter a new cycle, it's new leadership. And it often takes years for investors to look back and realize there was a shift. That usually happens at the start of a new cycle. So I think this one's all about value and and all about international over the U.S., because of those behavioral and fundamental dynamics that have really shifted. And so I think many investors may miss that. That could be really surprising and a real positive in kind of giving this market a second wind after tech and and the U.S. have taken it so far. What country or regions in particular feel like they have the most relative strength to borrow a technical analysis term to talk about economic fundamentals, but which economies feel like they kind of have their their acts together and look for uh, outsized growth? Well, I guess if I, if I look purely from a uh, what, what what economies have the most cyclical exposure, certainly uh, an economy like you know Canada, which trades like an energy ETF, or Australia that trades like a metals and mining ETF, uh, those two stand out. But Japan acts like a financial in part because the banks own shares in the companies, and companies own shares in the banks. Acts like a financials ETF, so that looks attractive. Germany behaves like an auto ETF, and that could be a real area that's hot uh, going forward here. A lot of bottlenecks right now in the manufacturing portion of that, but they're getting better pricing out of that. There's 
strong global demand that, and, and a trend to, to EV vehicles replacing uh, uh, fossil fuel vehicles. So that could be an interesting trend as well. So a lot of factors lining up to many different regions. And I think one of the challenges of picking a country or two is you get really focused sector industry exposure when you do that. I prefer a broader international approach. Therefore, you don't have to worry too much about hidden risks that could come from any one sector you may be overly concentrated in. For investors, and we have them of all ages who listen to the podcast and who come to Investopedia, but if they're looking to just get started building an international portfolio with some exposure to the right places, I'm not looking for individual picks, but a recommendation. How do they get started? What are the foundations of building a, a robust international portfolio? Yeah, the good news is it's never been easier or less expensive to do it. So you can look at, I prefer to use you know international ETFs and, and mutual funds. They're easily accessible, very low, low cost, and you get a lot of diversification. But increasingly, there are ways through individual equities to do that as well. But of course, that has to be your thing and get into that. But I, I, I really think taking a look at a broad international ETF that tracks those broad benchmarks is a really great way to begin to get some exposure there. I think, again, this cycle could be one where international stocks outperform. It's been a long time, maybe a whole generation of investors that uh, aren't used to seeing that. But when we see these shifts, they often outperform by six percentage points a year for an entire cycle. That can be very important to staying on track to your financial goals. So so, something you don't want to overlook right now. Such good advice. And your guidance and advice is so valuable. I love following your your Monday morning setup for the week and all the good research you and your team at Schwab put out. Jeff Kleintop, the Chief Global Strategist for Charles Schwab. Thanks for being on The Express this week. Thanks, Caleb. My pleasure. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term the educated investor needs to know this week. And this week, we have a very special twist to terminology time. We asked our listeners and followers to send us the investing question they want answered by us, and the person who sent us the question we selected gets the very handsome and stylish Investopedia Express hoodie. They are cozy, they are sporty, and I always wear one when I'm working on the Express. This week's winner is Matt Domino, who asks us to explain why the Federal Reserve manipulates the stock market by buying treasury bonds. Good question, Matt Domino, and it does seem like that's what the Fed is doing, but the Fed will tell you that's not its intention. The Fed has two key mandates, maximum employment and keeping inflation under control. It has its eye on the stock market as a barometer of the health and sentiment of investors, but it doesn't buy or sell stocks. What it does, especially in times of economic crises, is buy government bonds through what it calls quantitative easing. It started doing this in the 2008 financial crisis because banks had stopped lending to one another and to businesses, and nobody wanted to buy U.S. bonds, which kind of helped fund our government operations. The U.S. Treasury bond, particularly the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, is one of the most widely held securities on the planet because investors generally believe that the U.S. economy is healthy and the U.S. government will back it up no matter what. But if investors get scared and stop buying U.S. Treasury bonds, the Fed steps in as the purchaser of last resort. When the Fed buys bonds, bond prices are pushed higher and yields, and therefore interest rates, which yields are slightly based upon, decrease. Lower bond yields push investors into the stock market in search of returns. Remember, big investors get paid to deliver returns, and if those returns can't be found in the safety of the government bond market, they will go fishing in the stock market, driving stock prices higher. It's not the Fed's intention per se, but it is a consequence of the Fed's quantitative easing or purchasing of government bonds. The Fed isn't manipulating the stock market as much as it is making stocks irresistible to investors. Good question, Matt. Enjoy your Express hoodie and post a pic of you staying smart wearing it on our Instagram or Twitter feed. We'll let Ursula Burns, the legendary former CEO of Xerox, take us out this week. 
Burns was not only one of very few female CEOs to lead a Fortune 500 company, she was the first black female CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and she helped turn that legendary company around when she took over in 2009. Here's Burns talking about the challenges and opportunities that female leaders face, especially in STEM. I say this to women all the time, particularly women trying to get into STEM. I guarantee you, you will be the minority in the room. And instead of that being a burden, it should be an opportunity for you to distinguish yourself. All of us now are pioneers, every one of us. A lot of what pioneers do, they do not benefit from themselves. Here's to trailblazers like Burns and all of you out there willing to be the first to walk through the fire. You be a trailblazer too this week, but beware of falling block trades and margin calls. We'll catch you a little further on down the line.